Hi everyone, welcome to episode 47 of Honestly Unbalanced. This week we are chatting to the lovely Trina Altman, who is both a yoga teacher and a Pilates teacher, which is interesting because you tend to be one or the other, right? So we talk about how the two practices actually complement each other and about how she got into the industry. She was actually a childhood cheerleader, found out she was hypermobile, discovered a bit of a gap in the market uh, when she was coming to some yoga classes and, and found she wanted to really know and understand why she was doing certain things. Uh, which led her to create Yoga Deconstructed, which is also the title of her book, where you, which you can find everywhere that books are sold. And we also talk about her journey from being a worker at Goldman Sachs, working her way up the ladder, which was, she said, was very, very stressful. And then moving on to becoming a fashion designer where she created jewelry of crystals and feathers. So I love finding out that she had this lovely creative side to her as well. And then how she got into yoga and Pilates and fused this beautiful combination of science and deconstructing yoga poses and also creativity as well. It's an interesting journey and I hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Thanks, guys. Also, guys, if you love our podcast, please give us a five-star review. It really helps us to go up in the ratings and spread our message and our guest message far and wide. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your support. Honestly, I'm balanced. And then I lived in New York City all through my 20s. Um, uh, my first job out of school was at Goldman Sachs on Wall Street mm. as an investment banker. Um, so my first experience in New York with, with yoga was Bikram. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Bikram was all about, you know, it's like hot, sweaty. Sweating. Mm. And I think there were like two pranayamas that you, we, you would do. It was like same 26 posture. Mm. Um, at that time in New York City, I lived in the, I lived in lots of places, but um, I was in the East Village and there weren't very many yoga studios, believe it or not, mm. um, which I know is like, I mean, well, now with the pandemic. Um, so there was Jiva Mukti, which was like right upstairs from Crunch Gym. Um, and there was um, uh, Shivananda Yoga Studio in East Village. There was Bikram down in Tribeca, where I would go. And I think there was another one on the Upper West Side. And honestly, like that was about it. Wow. <laughs> so it wasn't, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm talking like 96, 95, 97. Um, and, and so, so yeah, that was kind of your exposure to yoga um, as a corporate person, like who I worked, you know, from like whatever, seven in the morning till nine at night. If I was lucky, I could get to maybe one yoga class a week, um, you know, and it was a Bikram class or, mm. or like, I'd go to the gym and, you know, I took a class, like a yoga class at the gym. And this was like 1990, you know, five, six, seven, eight. So I didn't do my teacher training, my 200 hour until I was 36 years old. Um, so, so that would be, what is it? 12 years ago. Yeah. So 2007. Yeah. Um, so I've done a lot of different things and I haven't done this thing I didn't start it until 2007. So the yoga world in 2007 was very different than the yoga world I was exposed to when I started, which was in the 90s where I had my Patricia Walden uh, VHS. <laughs> and I would do my like step aerobics Reebok VHS. Love it. And then pop that one out. And then I'd pop in the 
Patricia Walden, who's a very famous Iyengar teacher. I don't know if you're aware. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the day, there were like five famous yoga teachers, you know, in the U.S. There would be like the ones that presented at Yoga Journal, the ones that had DVDs like Rodney and Patricia Walden. And that was it. Mm. Um, so that was kind of like the yoga you would be exposed to um, in the 90s. Did you know that you yeah. did you know you were uh, hypermobile before you started yoga or did that give you a whole new awareness of your body that you didn't have previous to that? Well, you know, growing up, I did gymnastics oh. and um, I grew up in Oklahoma, mm. um, which is right above Texas. <laughs> and um, and I did competitive cheerleading, which is a thing. Oh, I don't wow. Know if you've seen the Netflix, oh, my God. We um, watched documentary. Um, is it cheer? Oh, we were obsessed with it. It's yes. so good. Yeah. I cried. Yeah, so th- <laughs> you cried. <laughs> I cried in that final episode. <laughs> what did you cry about? I mean, just, just joy, I... just happiness for them, just empathy. I'm that kind of person. <laughs> It's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was doing that. The, the, we placed fifth in the nation, and it would have been in like 1988. And I think it was the first or second year that they ever had those championship competitions. Wow. Yeah. And so you were part of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I grew up as a mover doing hypermobile flexi things um, like gymnastics. And, you know, I was the one they throw up to the top of the pyramid. And, you know, I was the one who like when we were at the football games and basketball games, like I would just stand there on the hard basketball court and like do a backflip or do like, you know, 15 back handsprings with a backflip. So but you know, this is in the 80s. There was no cross training. I mean, fitness wasn't even like, like I would go to Jane Fonda high impact aerobics classes with my mom at the local aerobic studio and we would wear song leotards <laughs> with That was my next it. question. <laughs> like the super shiny, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the braided cherry cloth headband. I love that. Jump up and down on the hard floor for an hour. It was so much fun. <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, I would say that, and then in my training in 2007, nobody ever like looked me in the eye and was like, Hey, you're hypermobile. Like mm. you should rain. No, no, not at all. Wow. Not at all. I think it feels it like it wasn't it's... until I started having a lot of pain that I was yeah. like, Hmm, what's, what's this about? I think people have only really become more aware of it yeah. in the last few years. Like consciously, it's kind of come into the main, you know, some teachers yeah. have always been, conscious of it like i've always been i'm not saying I, i'm i've always been quite pernickety but like you're, you're too flexible excess flexibility isn't a good thing mm. but i think it's entering the psyche a little bit more now of the general yoga community how would you define or how would you differentiate between people let's say who are just very flexible and people who are mm. hypermobile because i see you know because hypermobile is a very different thing mm. and i see sometimes you know lots lots of people now declaring themselves to be hypermobile and they're not they're just flexible really flexible overly flexible in certain areas so how would you differentiate those two things yeah well um i am not a scientist or a clinician or a kinetic uh, like a connective tissue researcher um so you know the i think that if you are really flexible but you can control your ranges of motion right like i you know, deadlift my body weight. And that reigns in my hypermobility to such a place where I can practice quote, normal yoga. But 
only if I do like a super heavy weightlifting session for an hour, minimum twice a week, better three times a week. Mm. Um, and we're all different, right? And so just because you're quote unquote hypermobile, right? There's the bait and test, which is the one where like, can you bend over and like flat calm the floor and mm. feel nothing? Yes. Right. You know, can you, there's one with a finger, like, can you pull your finger all the way back and it mm. touches your form? So you might have like a higher or lower um, test on the Baton scale. Um, it's not very, like it's been around forever. And, you know, if you truly want to be tested from what I understand for hypermobility and especially for, um, uh, oh gosh, um, the name of the, there's, two and they're both escaping me um that are the names of the hypermobility disorders mm-hmm. and they're just That's like there's right. two names and they're not coming to me right now mm-hmm. but you can get tested for them and they're very serious like to the point where um you dislocate like all the time Gosh. um you like your connective tissue is is such that um like blood vessels burst just you know out mm-hmm. of the blue um, and then, you know, it affects every aspect of who you are. Yeah. So I guess a good way to say, to say this is I am not a special to, specialist on hypermobility. You should definitely, like, I can recommend some people to have on the show. And there's, mm. um, there's a podcast that's, like, all about hypermobility with an MD who is great. Um, I think her name is Bloomstein. Um, yeah, we've had we've had two, we've had Jules on. Uh, so just for like any listeners, yeah. if you're interested in that, we had a conversation yeah. with Celeste Pereira, who's a mm. UK-based teacher who's generated yes. a thing called the Hypermobile yes. Yogis, and mm. Jules, right. Jules and I. I don't know if you covered it or not, but in the episode is Jules. I think it was it was touched on a little bit. But I think at the same time, although we can get really into the deep technical stuff, that's sometimes not what what students need to hear. You know, they need it explained in kind of simple and more accessible ways. Like one, one thing I always say to students is if you can do something that looks really dramatic and it feels easy, that's probably not a good thing. <laughs> like little ways of saying it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, you know, when I lift my arm, like it ends here. But that's because I do so many pull-ups and push-ups and like weight training. My arm used to just like fly back behind my head mm. and I would feel nothing. And then when I went to the physical therapist and I was like, hey, you know, I have a lot of pain in my shoulder. He was like, oh, yeah, you have pitcher's shoulder. And I'm like, what is pitcher's shoulder? And he's like, like a baseball pitcher. He's like, you have multidirectional instability in your shoulder. And this was about 10 years ago. And I was like, oh, well, I've never played baseball. You know, like, like, and that I thought was really um, illuminating that, you know, like sports people in the sports world who have a lot of money to go to physical therapy and like figure out what's going on when they're in pain, right? That's the terminology. But like yoga is such a new thing in the sense that like when I did my teacher training, it was all about like yoga is all you need. You don't need to do any other type of movement practice. And so um, you know, from age, I guess, 36 is when I started my 200 hour and, um, about 2000, and that was 2007, about 2009 was when I started my Pilates training and I've never taught mat Pilates, only taught Pilates on the apparatus, which means it's externally loaded with springs and pulleys and there's closed kinetic chains. There's partially closed kinetic chains, which for somebody who's hypermobile, you know, it gives you a lot of feedback and helps you feel where you are in space. 
And so that was um, my kind of wake up moment of like, oh, wow, like I don't have pain when I do this, but I do have pain when I do, you know, the yoga flow classes. And so I guess back in like 2010 was when I started talking about this. And I, you know, social media wasn't really a thing. And about 2007, I started talking about it on social media. And that's when um, I feel like that was kind of like the three to four years ago that like, I felt like all the screaming into the wind I had been doing for the last seven years <laughs> was like finally being heard. And there were some changes happening in, wow. in yoga land. Yeah. It's funny, you always hear about people comparing uh, yoga and Pilates, like, oh, you either you either do one or the other a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm not, because I guess they're both on the mat to a degree. Well, Matt, yeah, Matt Pilates. Yeah, Matt Pilates yeah. is, yeah. Um, I've always been more more yoga, but when I've done Pilates, I've found it's it's really helped with my strength. So would you, would you say that the two really complement each other then? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to differentiate between Matt Pilates and the Pilates on the app. Yeah because mat pilates like yoga is a body with weight practice yeah so like for me as a gymnast you know a hollow body hold would be something you would do as like a gymnastics drill and in mat pilates classical mat pilates the first exercise you do on the mat is called the hundreds but it's a hollow body hold with um like a breath count while you're pumping your arm um and so mat pilates is really challenging because right it's just your body weight you can't really scale it up or down um and joseph just like um i would say the people who you know were in the krishnamacharya lineage they all were like it was the same era of swedish gymnastics and colonization in india the ymca coming over there and like introducing physical culture physical culture movement of weightlifting and um so versus the um, Pilates on the equipment, um, Joseph created when he was in tournament camp on the Isle of Man. Um, yeah, which is, I mean, like, I'm not going to get all the Pilates history right, but there's so many good books you can read. Um, so he would, and, and he was rehabbing soldiers. So he would take the box springs off the bed and then attach them to the bedpost and then put like a little fabric towel loop and put like the soldier's feet in those straps and while they were lying down in bed, like have them do leg circles and things like that. And so apparatus-based Pilates is more, like it can be really hard. You can do all the like cool, fun vinyasa flow things on a reformer or a Cadillac um, and you can make them harder or easier. And so I always just like to explain, you know, if you're a cook in the kitchen and you don't have any tools, right like that's kind of like mat pilates mm. um versus or, or yoga on the mat you might mind it's like blocks blanket straps versus like you're a cook and you actually have like something to stir the pot with and you have a pan and you have a knife and a fork so you can like do things <laughs> um and problem solve i would say in in much better ways um with Pilates on the apparatus or even gyrotonic is like a similar movement methodology Mm. that has, or at the gym with the the pulleys and the cables, right? It just actually kind of, you know, gives you like a hammer and a nail that you don't have with just a mat, Mm. a floor and a wall. So can we go back a little bit to, you said that you used to work at Goldman Sachs. What was, what was life 
pre like pre yoga pre becoming a teacher pre movement (laughs) (laughs) um yeah well I mean it was a a good like 15 years I don't know how much you want to hear about it but I'll I'll give you like whatever you you want to say (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so it was awful like you know I um you know when I was in college my parents were like we don't care what you do you just have to get a job that has healthcare benefits <laughs> Fair. <laughs> right and which just you know so it means like a, you know an office job where you are you know you, you get benefits for healthcare because that's you know it's not Canada here mm-hmm. and so I went to career services or the career counseling center and they were mostly at the college I went to at Brown recruiting for Peace Corps um, investment banking and consulting and some advertising I mean this was 1990. 394. Um, things were just much smaller. Um, and so I, um, you know, my, uh, my dad, we call him money head, like he loves <laughs> everything that has to do with investing. And, you know, like that is just a thing, finance and all that kind of stuff. And I, I said, okay, well, I went to career services. And, um, you know, this is kind of what they're offering. This is like who the recruiters are that are coming to interview. And I was like, you know, there's a whole bunch of investment banks. And they said that, you know, if you stay there for a year, you get a really big bonus and you make a lot of money. <laughs> and I knew my dad always wanted to do that, um, but didn't. And I was like, well, I'm going to give it a shot. We'll see what happens, you know. And he was like, oh, you'll never get a job on Wall Street. Oh. <laughs> like, oh, yes, I will. Um, so a lot of me getting that job was just kind of to show my dad because I didn't like it. I didn't, it's not, I'm an artist, I'm a creative, um, but that job um, was, you know, it got me to New York because I had always wanted to be a fashion designer and um, my parents were like, no, you're not living in New York. Um, No, you're not going to fashion design school. So that job at Goldman Sachs, um, I stayed there for a little while and then, you know, like they pay your moving expenses, your broker fee, um, like all your relocation stuff. And, um, and then, you know, very soon thereafter I quit and I started going to fashion Institute of technology at night and paid for it with my credit card. Um, <laughs> and that began my, <laughs> and my bought a sewing machine and paid for it with my credit card. Um, and, uh, um, you know, just did like a ton of temp jobs, which back in the day, which is like, so not PC right now with gender stuff. Um, I was a guy gal Friday, which is just like what you would, they had these temp agencies. So this is the beginning of freelance. Like this was so exciting to me. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I can get a job where I'm not a corporate slave, you know, where I'm not on salary. I'm paid by the hour. I can figure out what I want to do. I can temp in all these different places. And, you know, as a receptionist, as a guy gal Friday, which just means you photocopy on a Xerox machine all day, you know, or you're a gopher. Um, I didn't type fast enough to make the higher hourly rate to be an admin assistant. You had to type a certain number of words per minute. So I didn't make the cut for that. Um, yeah. And so I tempted in a lot of places. Um, I started going to FIT at night um, with my credit card. Mm-hmm. And then my mom was like, okay, you know, like, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said anything (laughs) and you you know this is keeping in mind I grew up a very like um, materialistic spoiled child in the 80s um, in Tulsa Oklahoma Um, I said I would shop at Barney's 
I don't know <laughs> if you've heard of Barney's, um, but Barney's is like this um, super like she boutique. It was like, it's kind of like Equinox, but for um, clothing and right. shoes and jewelry, um, it's no longer, but um, it, I mean, it's snobby to the point where you would be like, oh God, no, like I wouldn't go to Saks Fifth Avenue. I only shop at Barney's. Oh, wow. Kind of wow. Yeah. Or like, no, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't shop at um, Nordstrom. I only shop at Barney. So very exclusive, very, um, it has a whole history, the, the, the Preston family. And anyways, so she said, okay, good. Go get a job at Barney. So I got a job at Barney selling uh-huh. and I loved it um, because I got to be creative. Um, I was on commission. So I got to problem solve and, and help people. And um and it was really, uh, you know, I mean, you kind of know what Equinox is like. A lot of super creative, artistic, like edgy vibe. It was the same exact thing. Um, and in New York City. Uh, so, so yeah. And then, you know, I helped uh, Ellie Tahari, who was a fashion designer, you know, brought in a girlfriend. To, and I was wearing a shirt that I had made for a homework assignment. And he's like, oh, wow, I really like that. You know, we're looking for some assistant designers to hire for the trims department. Um, and I was like, cool. So that was my first job, like, in as an assistant fashion designer. And I started working in fashion design. And, and then, you know, again, I don't want to take up too much time, but I worked as a fashion designer for quite a while, Calvin Klein, Ari. Um, and then I transitioned into jewelry design so I had my own jewelry design company. I made feather and crystal jewelry. So I have wow. a very woo side. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I sold it to, you know, Barney's and places like that. And so that was kind of my 20s. Um, was New York City, you know, creative fashion design, jewelry design. And then when I was 29, I left New York City. Um, and for all kinds of different reasons, again, long stories. I don't know if you want to hear them. We do. But I long. <laughs> it's your podcast. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Um, I, you know, you get so tired of like, it's like, <laughs> oh no, people have definitely heard this before. I've told this before. Um, they go for it. So, um, I started dating a guy that I was friends with in high school. Um, and I was in New York city. He was in Oklahoma. And so this was like. I was almost 30 and I was just tired. Like, you know, I lived in a rat infested apartment in the East village with bars on my windows. (laughs) Like they were like, you know, I I remember walking out one morning and there was like blood on the cement outside my front doors on the first floor. And Jimmy, who's the super, I was an ex-con who I was like buddies with because I was like, I need Jimmy on my side. Um, I was like, what happened? He's like, oh yeah, you know, the, the tenant on the fifth floor jumped off and killed himself last night. Like it was nothing, you know? Oh my <laughs> like, God. So yeah, I was, you know, I, I mean, I could tell you all my little New York stories, but um, yeah, I think I, I was like, wow, you know, I could, I could live somewhere where when my, um, you know, air conditioner that's like a box needs fixing I don't have to like physically carry it 10 blocks to the place because no cab will pick me up when I'm carrying my air conditioning window unit you know like like I grew up in a place where like I had a car and you would drive places and you know just like 
modern conveniences like oh i could go back to living somewhere where i'm not like with the little shopping cart. i don't know if you know this is a thing in london but like you know where you have like the little um basket thing with the wheels and you know you put your now there's delivery of everything but like you know you would that's how you would carry your groceries home so i moved back to be with this guy he turned out to be an alcoholic didn't work out um but I ended up working at a textile company because it was like the closest thing to what I had been doing in fashion. So um, I worked in the warehouse because there were no design spots open. So that was a really um, interesting experience because all I did all day long was um, we had these little staircases with wheels and the warehouse just had all fabric samples. And so we, were, I would, we would pull the samples to ship them out um, to people to look at to decide if they wanted to order them or not. Um, and so I did that and then finally like a spot opened up um, where I was then a designer at that textile company for a while. Um, and uh, anyways, my I met my husband in Oklahoma, but he's from LA um, and he's, uh, he's about five years younger than I am. We met at the bookstore <laughs> and um, again, long story short, like he, um, he was in his third year of medical school, I guess he was 24 and I had just turned 30 and he lied about his age, Did um, he? <laughs> <laughs> but long, yeah, long story short. Yeah. Um, he ended up going to, um, to Yale for his residency and I missed him a lot. And so I moved there to be with him mm. and I did my, and this is skipping over, living in other places and you know other stuff but um yeah and so uh uh yeah i did my 200 and 300 hours when we lived in connecticut while working as a nanny so at that point you were teaching you what what style was the vinyasa yoga that you did was it just general vinyasa for your 200 um so my 200 hour no um my teacher her name's kim valeri and it's called yoga spirit studios and at the time um it was the only 200 hour training in um massachusetts uh connecticut and uh maine so she would travel she'd teach my training was 13 months one weekend a month for my 200 hour which was amazing because we had a full like you know what is it you know, three and a half weeks or whatever in between each weekend to like study and read and practice and learn. Um, and it was everything. So it was kind of like a liberal arts degree. So the only vinyasa we learned was um, she gave us a sheet of paper with like some stick figures um, of one flow. And that was like the vinyasa. And then we had like a little intro to Kundalini, a little intro to restorative, a little intro to um, like it was the, the manual was more Iyengar. So like it had, you know, pictures with like some Iyengar cues, but, um, it was a lot of Ayurveda, a ton of philosophy. So it was, um, yeah, it was everything, a lot of meditation. Um, and was yeah. this, was this 300 hour with her as well? And then I did my 300 hour with her as well. Um, because, I was afraid to teach groups. I said I would never, ever teach a group yoga class. I was only doing this to teach private because I didn't want to get up in front of people. <laughs> I was never an actor or, you know, 
actress, any of those things. Um, I was an oyster in Alice in Wonderland when I was a kid <laughs> with no with no lines. Um, and so her 300 hour was a at the time a yoga therapy 300 hour, which meant we focused on teaching one on one yoga therapy. And so I at this point we had moved um, as far as I got a job in uh, uh, we moved to Iowa and then we moved to Wisconsin. So I flew back for I started the modules while I was in my 200, the 300 hour modules. And then I flew back to finish a couple. And um, yeah, that was the focus. And then, you know, I realized I really wanted to teach group classes. I just needed a lot of coaching and mm. therapy to get over my fear. Because mm. I, I took a public speaking class in college to try to get over that fear and it didn't work at all. Oh. <laughs> what, was your, what was your first class like then when you taught a group? Uh, the first class I ever taught was the place where I would go get my hair cut. Um, the woman who cut my hair owned the salon and she said, you know, I know you're finishing your 300 hour at this point. Like the girls really need you. Like their mm. arms hurt, their shoulders hurt, you know, from cutting hair all day and bending over the shampoo table. Will you teach a class? And I was like, no, <laughs> you know, I was like, no way. I'm wait. I'm not ready. Blah, blah, blah. And she's like, yes, you are. And so I was like, fine. She's like, we're going to move all the chairs out of the way. And so I parked in the parking lot, called um, uh, Farzad, um, who was not my husband at the time, but, you know, and I had a panic attack in my car. And he was like, you're going to be fine. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And so that's, yeah, that was the first class. And how how did it go? (laughs) Nobody died. Yay! like it was fine, right? Like I knew more than they did because I had done a training and yeah, I kept going back and I taught, I think she was like, let's do like an eight week session. Um, and so, yeah, that was my, my first like group class teaching experience. You, you mentioned before that, of course, you wanted to teach privates. And of course, I'm thinking in the context of you kind of developing your own yoga method to some degree, I guess one of the benefits of privates is you can actually see really closely how body, individual bodies evolve over time and you get to know individual bodies a little bit more intimately. Like I always say to teachers, a really wonderful opportunity to learn is just by teaching as many people as you can. And that is really good. You know, when you teach constantly classes of 20, 30 people, you realize, yeah. okay, well, that instruction does that thing to that many people or this instruction doesn't work or having taught this instruction to a thousand people, I'm going to refine it. So there is a benefit of teaching groups in that sense. But unless you have a very dedicated student base and quite small classes, it's very hard to see that individual long-term development, which you can in one-to-ones. So do you think, I'm intrigued at how that then informed you then creating your own, whether you want to call it style or not. I I guess it did to some degree. Yeah. I mean, you know, as soon as I did my 200 hour, um, I finished it in 2008, 2009, I did my Pilates, um, uh, reformer training and mat, and then I finished up Cadillac chair and barrels. And in Pilates, you're not allowed to take, at least this is how it was then, a group class until you've taken a certain number of privates and the teacher says you're ready for a group class. And then a group class was about five people because there were five reformers, five one chairs, five towers. And so I've always taught mostly private for many reasons. You know, one, there's a conversation. So, right, like, 
I teach them a movement and then I say, how did that feel? And they're like, that felt awful. And I'm mm. like, no problem. Let's do something different. Try this. How does this feel? Oh yeah, that feels better. Or no, that's still not good. I'm like, no worries about like, you know, 30 more things in my toolbox that we can do. And um, yeah, you realize like, you know, my morning private clients, I would, you know, I had one client in the morning for a very long time who's, um, I know you're kind of anatomy geek, um, definitely um, antiverted, like as far as, you know, the acetabulum, I'm sure mm. were more forward and like could do internal rotation till the cows came home. External rotation for her was like neutral, parallel. <laughs> and then my client in the afternoon, I'm sh pretty sure, like I don't have x-rays, more retroverted, like her acetabulum are further back, like could have been a ballerina, could externally rotate for days. Internal rotation for her was like being in neutral with her feet pointing forward, but like working so hard that her inner thighs and adductors like cramping. <laughs> and so I think when you have an experience like that, you realize that, you know, all those pictures in the anatomy book aren't true. I mean, you really realize, I really realized it when I did the cadaver, you know, lab dissections with Gil and there were only, you know, like, five cadavers and and just in those five cadavers like you know one of them had six lumbar vertebrae instead of five one of them had a horseshoe kidney instead of two kidneys and just like we look different on the outside we look different on the inside and unless there's a conversation which can usually only happen in one-on-one -on -one, you don't really know how the person is experiencing because they can't verbalize it they're not gonna be like yo let's stop class and let me tell you how i'm feeling <laughs> You know, they can come up after and ask questions, but yeah, it's a really different way, I think, of, um, and I love it because I like problem solving and like seeing mm. people progress and like that relationship. I'm just yeah. going to jump back again because sorry if I missed it, but I don't think you said what made you uh, come away from the jewelry business and what made you step away from that and to, to the yoga Oh, yeah, I can tell you. Um, so I, you know, I, I loved making jewelry. I'm super creative. And um, so I made like the feather ones and the crystal ones and then the feather and crystal. And then I started doing some stuff with leather. And my dad, who's like a business guy, um, was like, this is great. Like, these stores are ordering from you. You can't sit at home and make like, you know, all of these orders. And I'm like, yeah, and I actually don't want to. Like, I'm so over those feathers and crystals. Like, I'm ready for the next thing. Right. And he's like, well, we would need to go to Hong Kong and, like, have those made in a factory. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to go to Hong Kong. <laughs> like, I don't want to. You know, so it was the realization of, like, I love this because I'm an artist and I'm creative. Um, and I learned as in fashion design the same lesson that, like, it really, when it comes down to it, it's a business. Right. And so there wasn't creativity. It was like, this is the forecast projection that we paid this super expensive consulting form to tell us what is going to be in style next season. This is what you will design. Mm. And how, how and do you feel? Sorry. So, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. No, do you feel yeah. that you're able to be as creative in what you do now then? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, but that's because I think, just like I did with, as a designer, and I'd be like, ooh, feathers, crystals, sequins, velvet, leather. You know, I'm like, ooh, like this Feldenkrais somatic movement is going to really help 
with this Pilates exercise, mm. this powerlifting move, and um, this yoga pose. Mm. So in terms of, yeah, in, so in terms of this method, that you've, so I think I understand what you do in relation to, let's say, private clients who are working more intimately with groups and you can find mm-hmm. the thing that works and it becomes problem solving. You find the thing that works for them and their particular issues and their unique body. How do you feel that applies or can it apply to group classes? Mm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I love teaching group classes because you're basically creating an experience. And the reason why I wrote this book is because when I did my Pilates training, I learned all about exercise science and kinesiology. Uh, And um, I wasn't seeing that in the yoga world. All I was seeing was, you know, I was teaching all these continuing and education trainings for teachers. And every time I teach, they'd be like, what's the contraindication for this? What is this pose good for? Um, you know, what is the modification? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, you just need to learn. Um, so I created, uh, this was, it's called break it down, regress to progress. And it's basically like exercise science principles and let's apply it to yoga poses. So, you know, if you look at the pose, you can say, oh, how could I decrease or increase the load? How could I close or open some of these kinetic chains? How could I change the orientation to gravity to make it regress or progress? How could I uh, shorten the lever to regress or progress it? So you don't need to memorize modifications. You just know all of these exercise science principles. And then you use your brain and your critical (laughs) thinking skills to, right? You don't memorize anything. And so that's why what I teach isn't a method. It's just like, it's just how to be creative and how to use your critical thinking skills implementing biomechanics, exercise science, and kinesiology. This And this is what will really benefit students as well, is my belief. Like I always encourage students yeah. to try and understand not the shape, not the architecture, but why. Mm. What is this pose trying to do? And that my belief is as you get more experience, you ask that why a little bit more. Like what is actually the intention of this pose? What am I trying to open? What am I trying to lengthen? is what I'm doing helping me do that? You know, like a perfect example, let's say, is like a lizard style pose where, you know, a student completely kind of rounds the back, they're going to full flexion, looking at the groin and headbutting the floor. (laughs) Like, was that really the aim of the pose (laughs) to take take the spine into like really significant flexion? But it could be. It could be, but in the... It could be, yeah. But in in the... Oh, I'm going to say, because there's no spinal flexion in yoga and a lot of yogis need to do some more spinal flexion, right? Like that was another thing I saw as I would teach some sort of basic thing that required, you know, spinal flexion and nobody could do it. Because what everything kind of, was what like, kind of thing? you know, extend, extend, extend. Rolling. Okay. Rolling on the floor. Like you, in order to roll, you have to round your spine. Like balls don't roll unless they're round. Mm. And they would be like thump, thump, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, just, you know, simple things like that, or even like, say to do a bind, right, you're rotating, and you have to flex your spine to get under there, and reach, I mean, that has a lot to do with anthropometrics, and what your mom and dad gave you, so yeah. you've got long <laughs> arms, and a, you know, a short torso, like, you probably don't have to flex your spine at all, but if you've got a long torso, and short arms and legs, like I do, I gotta flex my spine in order to bind. Yeah, no, 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 indeed, so, indeed. Yeah. And what, what? Yeah, understanding that those things matter. 
And what what would you like? What would you say to teachers who kind of want to incorporate your method in group classes? Is it more just you would say learn why, and then how would you get them to that convey that to students? Is there a method of doing that? Because of course, for many many teachers, what they're used to saying is a name of a pose, some rough instructions, and then maybe even count to one, two, three, four, five would you advise them to instruct more action of muscles, let's say, and get beyond instructing shape? What would be your tactic for enabling them to teach in that way? So, yeah, I actually don't tell anybody how to teach. Um, you know, I when I, tra- when I used to travel all over the world <laughs> teaching, um, continuing education for, you know, teachers, and, you know, uh, my modules are just always part of, like, 300 hour teacher training, sometimes 200 hour. Um, I am giving them permission to be an artist and a scientist at the same time. Mm. So, um, you know, I have so many different continuing education courses that focus on different things. Um, but, you know, if I, te- I teach a class um, as a way to, um, I would say kind of tell a story and you can tell any story you want to tell. So say I'm going to tell the story of like deconstructing a traditional asana sequence that happens in the coronal plane, right? Like your warrior two to your extended side angle, your triangle to your half moon, right? Um, We we like go, okay, well, first thing is like, we've got, we need like massive range of motion and external rotation in the hip right? Because all of those poses require that. Um, So we might want to do a somatic sequence at the beginning of class, um, whether it's Feldenkrais or Le Bon Martinius um, or Hannah somatics, that is um, like, I I like to teach with puzzle pieces. So I have a, I have like a 12 hour online course on yoga international called creative sequencing with somatics. And it just shows you um, how to, if you don't want to spend eight years taking Southern Christ and somatic classes like I did, like how you would pick um, a somatic sequence that is a deconstructed um, like puzzle piece of a traditional asana sequence. Um, or I might have us do say like something with, you know, foam roller, um, therapy ball to illuminate an area of the body that I'm going to focus on. Um, you know, not every studio has, you can just roll up a mat and use that as a foam roller. So, um, and that's like the first couple chapters in my book, which is all about, um, uh, interoception, proprioception and, um, introducing somatics. Uh, and pain science into your teaching. And then I would move into the next part of the group class, which is gonna be a lot of preparatory exercises. So what I used to call corrective exercises, um, but that would be things that come from physical therapy, um, or uh, they could be mobility drills, um, you know, from something like FRC, they could be um, warm up type of drills that you would see in strength and conditioning world. And again, those would be selected based on what um on that last little sequence that we're doing at the end of class you know say it's like the coronal sequence the bird of paradise um and so i'm telling a story joint by joint right we're going like okay 
what's happening in every direction of movement at every joint in the body um, in this sequence of poses or in this peak pose. And then how can we um, have our students kind of assess like, oh, wow, like if it's hard for me to lie on my back, which this I teach a lot, and it is, um, with my legs and tabletop, you know what I'm talking about, like, mm. yeah. And then um, we put, I put like a wood or a cork brick between their heels with their feet like this. So we call it frog in, in Pilates. So I'm taking something from Pilates where everyone's always like, holy, I don't know if I can curse, right? Like Go my inner thighs are dying, right? Um, you know, because you got your feet in your the straps, you're pushing in and out or the magic circle. And I do that with a, in a yoga situation. And these are all people who have stretched their inner thighs till the cows come home because mm -hmm. everything in asana, right, for the most part, is a spread your legs event. It's not an inner thigh strengthening your legs event. Mm -hmm. And so we'll do like sandasana slides where you stand and you've got one foot on the blanket, one foot on the floor. You go all the way out into Skandasana, and then you come all the way back, just like you would on the reformer. And then you go like, hey, you know, I know you can, like, I can have a latte and hang out in Skandasana and feel no stretch at all. And I see some of you can too. But like, can you come out of Skandasana, mm. right, without putting your hands on the floor, mm. bringing the blanket in? And so it just kind of opens them up. I've the whole 10 years I've been in LA, I've never taught a weekly class at a yoga studio. I've only taught at Equinox. And that's for, and, and interdisciplinary movement studios. And that's because I want to be able to say like, hey, welcome to my class. This is not all you need. You also need cardiovascular mm. exercise for your heart. You also need strength for your muscles and your bones. And then you also need this for um, regeneration and for mobility. Um, and, and I never felt like I could say that and, you know, at a studio, because yeah. then I would have to say, go somewhere else. I mm, couldn't just say, yeah. go upstairs, take the class, <laughs> and, you know, and, and I just, I'm a horrible liar. And so my peeps, so to speak, are just they're They like moving in all the ways. And, and I, so it works for me. And I guess what might happen there, like playing devil's advocate, is, you know, I imagine you get some criticism where it's not real yoga then. If it's just about the body, then uh, it's not yoga anymore. I I've got answers to that myself, but what's your answers to that? Yeah, you know, I don't. I think because I'm just so out there with, I mean, I, I teach, um, you know, like I love doing teaching like a yoga nidra at the end. I love, um, you know, teaching a pranayama while I'm teaching. But I think, um, you know, I'm not teaching at a studio that's like the Bhakti Yoga Shala, mm. where everybody, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I'm teaching at Equinox. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, or I'm teaching at a studio that has gyrotonic, gyrokinesis, Pilates on the apparatus, physical therapy, um, somatic classes, and yoga, mm. right? And so I purposely put myself in an I mean I taught actually though I taught at a Muay Thai boxing gym mm -hmm. a yoga class um I taught at um a country club you know it's kind of like a gym um and so yeah I think um but to answer your question that's why I call my class yoga deconstructed I'm like hey welcome to my class this is not a flow class that's the class before this class 
and that's the class after this class and the other three classes after that class <laughs> in my class this is what we're going to do in case you didn't read the description you know if you happen to hop into the wrong place by mistake i will not have hurt feelings if you walk out like this is a gym you have a membership right like go down the hall with your stretching with the foam rollers like i will not be offended at all mm, it's yeah. nice isn't it when you have the ability to just teach how you want to teach and people can take it or leave it we're gonna we're running on now so we're gonna do two little quick fire questions just two yeah. little, quick, two fire little quick fires. okay if what is your least favorite and your favorite yoga pose oh gosh um least favorite probably chaturanga because i have finally gotten to the place like it's taken me years that I can do three sets of, of like eight to 10 regular push-ups, And because of, as we know, the said principle, specific adaptation to impose demand, I cannot do chaturangas because I don't train them. I would have to train tricep push-ups. <laughs> <laughs> and that takes a lot of time. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I would say chaturanga. Um, and then you said, and also most favorite? Yep. Um, most favorite? Gosh, so many, right? Um, I love so many yoga poses. Uh, gosh, it's hard to pick this one. But I mean, like down dog feels lovely. Love a right? down dog. I love down dog. Can't go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess fin <laughs> final question, a little quick one is any advice you'd give to your like 25 year old self? Aww. Oh my God. Yeah, I would say this. Your 20s are, are really hard and like everyone, everything's going to get a lot better when you turn 30, but it's still going to be really hard. <laughs> and then everything's going to get a lot better when you turn 40, but it's still going to be really hard. And then when you turn 45, things are going to like finally come together mm. and like everything you've been doing that's been so hard is going to finally come together. Oh, that's, that's, thank you. that's such a good way to finish. And tell us a little yeah. bit about where people can find you and your book, etc., on Instagram or whatever you want to share. Yeah, my website is where you can find everything. My name, just trinaaltman.com. And then, of course, that has um, the book, all my continuing education courses, um, my Instagram, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Perfect. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you. Oh, thank you so Honestly much for having me.